Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Kalfa. Let's talk about some wolves. On this episode of the Wolf Connection Podcast, we're trying something a little different. Uh, my co-host, Stephen, is joining us from Durango, Colorado. And on our guest, <laughs> our guest today is Rick Lamplew. He's an author and a wildlife advocate joining us from Gardner, Montana, with all the rest of the crew up there, uh, checking out the north uh, north part of the... You have Yellowstone National Park. Rick, thank you for taking the time to talk with both of us. How's everything going up in Gardner? Oh, things are going pretty well. I wish we had a little more snow. Yeah, they, we were talking to, I think, Jeremy... Uh, Jeremy Sundaraj, who's one of the biotechs up there, and he said it was it was actually warmer than he thought. So hopefully you guys can get some, some more snow. We actually still have a little bit here in California, believe it or not, at least where we are <laughs> in the mountains. Um, that's melting away. So yeah, it's not bad. So I want to just briefly get a background from you. You've written a couple of books, and we'll touch on those today, as well as the wildlife advocacy part of your journey and what your mission is. How did you get involved in Yellowstone first? I know you and your and your wife Mary, uh, you're prevalent through Temple Temple of Wolves, which is your first book. But how did you get started to really immersing yourself inside of Yellowstone and becoming the author and advocate that you are right now? Well, um, John, I took a really roundabout path to writing about wildlife and wildlands. Um, I didn't actually see my first wolf until I was 63 years old wow. and had been retired for a year. Wow. And uh, prior to retiring, I spent a whole lot of years using my bachelor's degree in psychology to help people who had been injured on the job find new work they could physically do. So I was a career counselor, but only for injured workers. And that experience led me to write my first book, which was a job search guide. And that was more than 25 years ago. And that was my start to becoming a writer. Uh, but there wasn't a single wolf in that book. Um, and then uh, that book led to my writing, producing, and hosting a weekly public radio series about working in Oregon, where we lived at the time. And that series helped me hone my writing and interviewing skills. And then I went on to earn a master's degree in business administration, an MBA, and I used that to work with small businesses and help them succeed. It wasn't until just before retirement that uh, my wife, Mary, who you mentioned, and I discussed what we would like to do when our time was finally our own. I mean, we're both really physically active. We love to hike and ski and canoe and bicycle and we had spent a lot of time in Yellowstone doing that. And we decided that once we retired, we wanted to spend more time in Yellowstone. And that led to our applying to live and work as volunteers during the winter at the Lamar Buffalo Ranch, right in the heart of Yellowstone's wolf country. Hmm. So my journey with wolves and wild lands actually started almost to the day nine years ago. Wow. That's, like you said, very roundabout way to get there. What did you find, what did you find with, your, with your studies in, in psychology that you could relate to the way that 
you know, you and Mary and some of the individuals that you worked with can really relate to how people have this sort of bond or connection with wildlife or wild lands as, you know, how, how can you feel that there's a relationship there at all from your professional background to now your, your author and your advocacy work? Yeah, there are actually two things. That's a great question, John. And actually, there's two parts to my answer. Um, the first part is injured workers uh, in Oregon, where I worked, were, were that uh, workers' compensation system changed over the years. And injured workers had to really fight for every possible benefit. Um, and so they were underdogs. Okay, does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. um, and so my job really was helping underdogs get just basically what was should be coming to them. Hmm. Um, not a whole lot different than wolf advocacy. And then the second thing about the psychology background, one of the moments I most remember about uh, when we would, we would take groups skiing or snowshoeing um, out past the ranch and up to Rose Creek, up to where the first wolves were penned, before they were released. And when we would take people into that pen, some people actually broke down in tears. Hmm. And I couldn't help, you know, standing there watching that, uh, getting shivers, not from the cold, but from seeing their emotion. It really struck me how powerful wolves are, even when they're not present. Yeah, just to have that, really that visceral, that energetic reaction. We see some of that happen here at Wolf Connection where individuals or a group will come here for a hike and a tour. And the first thing they really hear are the wolves howling. So they don't physically even see the wolves or the wolf dogs on the property. They hear that and the reactions that people have, you know, really hit the spectrum. Uh, of emotion, and it's really an interesting. I mean, even just the idea of wolves to someone who's potentially never interacted with or seen a wild wolf, they can still have this remote but very deep connection with this animal. I think it's similar to horses. I think uh, wolves and horses sort of occupy a similar place in the human psyche um, where people have a distant and non-physical relationship with them that can be meaningful. Just the idea of them uh, provokes us in some way, whether positive or negative. Yeah, I agree with that for sure, for what both of you are saying. Uh, I'd see that same kind of reaction when people would see their first wolf through a spotting scope. Uh, the excitement was just palpable. Um, or when they'd actually see it without a spotting scope. There was one day we were at the ranch, we were going out of the bunkhouse to get on the bus. So that our job was to drive a 14 passenger bus. And on that bus would be an instructor, uh, an expert in some field and 12 or so passengers and a guest of the ranch. And we would drive them wherever the instructor said, or lots of times the instructor would ask us, well, where should we go to see wolves? Or where should we go to see coyotes? Or where should we go for this or that? <laughs> We'd take them there. And, um, you know, one day we were walking out to the bus uh, from the bunkhouse first thing in the morning, and the Lamar Canyon pack was up on Ranger Hill, within clear sight of us. I mean, Ranger Hill, where they were sitting, was probably 200 yards away. And wow. then down on, 
on actual the the um, northeast entrance road that goes right in front of the ranch, the Molly's uh, wolf pack was walking by. So standing there silently in this group of about 15 people, we saw probably 35 wolves, you know, a third of the park's population at that time right there. So you can imagine the excitement of that. Yeah, I can only imagine what, like you said, the the emotional reactions, the physical reactions as well for people who have a lot of the times from what we've discussed on this podcast, these are these are on people's bucket lists. This is a thing that they they want to see their their wi- a wild wolf. They want to go to Yellowstone and see the wolves. And you've you fully immersed yourself in that. Um, in the first book, I know it was only a winter. I know the second book, with which was deep into Yellowstone, that was a full year. So I, I know. I prior to us starting starting the podcast, we had talked about your experience in Lamar Valley, and you had suggested, which I think is a great idea, if you want to read there, there's a chapter that you really discuss the whole. It really encapsulates your entire vision of of what this was, and it's the first chapter of in the temple of in the temple of wolves. I, I know you want to read that, so I'll I'll hand the floor to you, and this will <laughs> kind of give everybody a background and really just a vision of what Rick was involved with. So Rick, it's the floor is yours to, to share that with everyone. So, yeah, I, I'm really happy to read this chapter. I, I, I try to read this chapter whenever I do presentations, whenever I'm speaking to groups, because it's so sensory and it gets, you know, people just get right into it. And it's also one of the favorite chapters that I've ever written. Um, it's called Hunger and Delight. In the middle of the night, I slipped from the warm log cabin into the below zero temperature outside. I pulled the door closed, hoping not to wake my wife, Mary. Still, the click of the latch resounds in the silence of the wild. I crunch onto the ice and snow-covered path, excited to be alone with the night. Frigid air freezes my nose hairs and burns my lungs. A full yellow orange moon, dark craters obvious, turns scattered clouds tangerine. Though I wear a headlamp, I leave the light off. I don't want my vision trapped in a narrow bouncing cone. Instead, my eyes adjust to reflected moonlight as I meander toward the bunkhouse, scanning for bison. A herd surrounded our cabin yesterday, swinging their massive heads side to side, bulldozing through snow, hungry for dried grasses that provide the nutrition of an empty cereal box. Mary and I, kneeling on our bed, watched and whispered and pointed, our smiling faces pressed against cold window panes. Over the crunch of my boots on snow, I hear howling, the sound that I longed for when I slid out of our warm bed. I stop, lean forward, and cup a hand behind one ear. My breath forms a gossamer curtain between me and the moon. Those wolves are here because of a wildly successful reintroduction involving the ranch and their haunting calls drifting in the moonlight 
thrill me. The Lamar Valley offers some of the best wildlife watching in the world. Winter hungry elk and bison migrate here to graze through snow that is shallower than elsewhere in the park. Wolves, coyotes, and mountain lions stalk the grazers while eagles, ravens, and magpies wait to scavenge. <laughs> the snowy backdrop makes this saga of death and life easy to spot. When I reach the moonlit road, I turn east towards Silvergate. Like the bison, I walk the middle. The road is not plowed after dark. Tonight's snow is unmarred by car tracks. But I follow a trail of wolf tracks, some as large as my hand with fingers spread, hoping for a sighting. But that's unlikely. Wolves want nothing to do with humans. If wolves are nearby, they will catch my scent or hear me and vanish like spirits in the night. I shake my head with longing. My goal while living here is to learn everything about this place. Though I know that's not possible. This park, even this small valley, is too complex. Still, I yearn to understand how this ecosystem works, how the parts fit together, from the flies that buzz half awake in the daytime warmth of our cabin to the stoic bison trapped in a race between starvation and spring. From the snow that blows in from the Pacific to the sage that spices this high desert. From the wolf packs that hunt as well-oiled machines to bring down elk to the incredible variety of beetles that scour the bones after the other scavengers are gone. What is the science behind this majesty? The setting moon kisses Specimen Ridge. A breeze rustles the cottonwoods. Rose Creek murmurs. To the west, another wolf howls, a sustained bass. From the east comes a wavering alto reply. February's breeding season is just around the corner and the wolves that live in the park are staking claims on mates and territory. I feel such love for this place that tears well up. And that's not good in bitter cold. I wipe the corners of my eyes and release a long sigh, my breath mingling with the creek mist. I close my eyes. I've only been here three days and I'm already afraid that three months isn't long enough. I open my eyes, turn back toward the ranch, gaze at Druid Peak and gasp as a meteor disappears behind it. I start walking and smile at my puffy downclad shadow, stark against glistening snow, accompanying me down the road, past my tracks, intermingled with those of wolves. I'm chilled, and longing for the warmth of Mary and the cabin. But I stop when the howling starts again. Soft at first, like the call of a single owl. 
Then other distinct voices join, different tones, different textures, a wild chorus of hunger and delight. Wow. What I... I will say this because I, I finished your I finished this book, Rick. And what I love that you did with this, and from my understanding about reading the background behind the this book, is that this I feel like I'm with you, and these are your journal entries. And I love that about it because it's it's a different way of writing than I'm used to reading, especially in nonfiction. So I enjoy these stories. You have beautiful stories about bison, about ravens, and you really sort of encapsulate the park inside of the wolf, the wolf majesty, but really just really, like you said, the entire ecosystem. And I love that you did that. What was, and we'll, we'll touch on this and then we'll move to a couple other things, but what, what was your thought process behind making this whole immersive experience? Well, I think it's important to tell you that I didn't volunteer there to be near wolves or to even write about them. I really knew very little about wolves. And what I did know was a product of myths. But I am a curious guy and I have a very open mind. And that first winter that I just read about really helped me start seeing the reality of a wolf's life. So... For example, I learned to identify specific wolves and discovered with amazement the distinct personalities of some of them. And I observed wolves interacting within their pack and watched rival packs battle over food or mates or territory. And I saw how wolves changed the behavior of elk. And I listened to so many experts describe in depth what we saw every day. And you know, that experience, slowly I began to understand how essential wolves are. Not just in Yellowstone, not just in the Rocky Mountains, and not just in the Great Lakes region, but wolves are essential wherever they're allowed to live. So some evenings I'd return to our cabin at the ranch, literally exhausted from a day of watching and learning. And I'd journal about what I'd seen or heard or felt or wondered. And as the winters added up, I found myself wanting to learn even more about wolves and about Yellowstone. And I read books and journal articles and I interviewed experts. And, you know, eventually all of that came together in the Temple of Wolves and the subtitle, A Winter's Immersion in Wild Yellowstone. But I don't think the book would actually happen without one more thing. And so each winter, Christmas, Mary and I, from our adventures from that year, we'd write, both both of us write and photograph. So we'd put together a little journal about, with pictures and journal entries about whatever we had done. You know, whatever two or three week adventure we had done, we, we would go on self-supported bicycle tours for four or 500 miles, you know, or we'd go deep into Montana or into the Yellowstone. And we'd give this as a Christmas gift to friends and family. Our little books. And when I did that for In the Temple of Wolves, I did this with only my journal entries, and but both of our photographs. And this was the first time in all those, this was probably the eighth Christmas we had done this with different books. 
And this was the first time that anybody ever said, wow, that was pretty good. You know, so I was like, oh, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe I'll, I'll turn this into a book. And, you know, it evolved from there. But it was literally because, you know, we it started out as just a little Christmas gift, uh, uh, just the journal entries, basically. And once I got that feedback from friends and family, I said, oh, gosh, maybe I, I can just keep going with this. I feel like that entry there that you just read sort of encapsulates the entire sort of premise that this podcast was developed on, which is that human-wolf connection. And I think that's really born in that that sort of macro, moment-by-moment experience that you have on the ground with this animal and how they sort of cause you to be more aware of yourself and your surroundings, aware of yourself and your surroundings. Well, yeah, that, you know, and that first winter was literally filled with wolf sightings. We were incredibly lucky, incredibly lucky. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the Lamar Canyon pack, um, we saw them almost every day. There were some mornings where we'd come out of the bunkhouse after having breakfast and the sun would just be hitting Ranger, uh, Ranger Hill right beside the ranch. And there in the sun would be the Lamar Canyon pack just sitting there sunning themselves, warming up after a long, <laughs> cold night. And, and, you know, as I mentioned with the Mollies, we saw other packs as well. We saw lone wolves. You know, and what all of that did was, you know, I went there with these myths about wolves in my mind and all of what I saw and heard and learned helped me start seeing beyond myth and beyond fantasy. And the thing that I came away from with that, all of that, the three winners there was that, you know, wolves are not here to attack us and wolves are not here to befriend us. You know, wolves hunt, mate, they raise their families, they protect their territory. Everything else we put on them. You know, basically wolves are surviving. And they do all this in a harsh environment with really little room for error, even in a national park. That's what I came away from that first winter with. And you had such a... You had such beautiful things to say about Rick McIntyre because in that first book he was still, I believe that the the for your for that Temple of Wolves was published, I believe, in 2014. So Rick was still working at the park. How was that bond that you two formed, even if it was, you know, a meeting here or there? He really seemed to stick with you. Um, I believe you called him the Archbishop giving a sermon in a couple of different, <laughs> which I found comical. And he was, yeah, he was such a great interview. Please go ahead, talk about that. Well, um, you know, when I decided to call the book In the Temple of Wolves, then calling Rick McIntyre the Archbishop was <laughs> just, you know, a perfect uh, comparison. I, I understand he wasn't all that crazy about that. He never told me that, but I heard that from other people. I don't know. Um, but, you know, my, um, my relationship with Rick McIntyre wasn't really any different from most people have with Rick McIntyre. Um, you know, whenever, because I worked for Yellowstone Association, um, when we come up with a bus, if Rick was available, he would come over and talk to the people. And that, so that's where I'd hear 
you know, his, his storytelling, which is just spectacular, especially when you're out in Yellowstone on the side of the road watching a pack of wolves, and he's telling you this incredible story about their history and their relationship with one another. There is nothing that, that beat that. I mean, that was really the best. And some evenings he would come to the, to the ranch and he'd talk to groups uh, when, you know, after we'd all had dinner, we would bring in guest speakers periodically and he would be a guest speaker and he'd come in and again, tell these stories in his soft-spoken way. Um, and, you know, people were just, when we said, oh, Rick McIntyre's coming, you know, it was like people would go, oh, great, I can't wait, I can't wait. I mean, it was really, it was really quite lovely. So I'm so glad that his books are being so well received. And, um, you know, he, he deserves all the accolades that he gets from them, all the years that he put in to watching wolves, learning about them, advocating for them, speaking for them along the side of the road. You know, nobody, nobody in Yellowstone compares to that. So when you take this information from Rick, from all these other places, how do you transition or how, how do you go from observer, volunteer to now becoming an advocate? And how do you, how do you give that information out in a way that can be received by people on both ends of the spectrum about wolves? Uh, when you say both ends of the spectrum, you mean people who are pro-wolf and people who are anti-wolf? Yeah, meaning that they're, you know, there's always, the, the wolf has been such a politicized and, and really such a vilified animal from our, from hundreds of years ago. Um, as you said, with the myths and the legends and the fables and things of that sort. So I know Rick and a lot of the individuals at Yellowstone have to have that balance of how to disseminate all the information they have there. So how do you, how does that work for you when you're trying to take on that task as well? Hmm. Well, I, the best way to answer that I think is um, my whole approach to writing is I write as if nobody's going to read it <laughs> because reality is very few people are. I mean, both in the Temple of Wolves and deep in the Yellowstone are Amazon bestsellers. But that doesn't mean much in terms of total number of people who will read that, those books. So because I write as if no one's going to read it, um, I can be honest. I can be as honest as I want to be. And I, I ha I've had two really incredible teachers um, in Corvallis, where I was living when, when I wrote Corvallis, Oregon, when I wrote In the Temple of Wolves. Um, one of my teachers was a person, an author by the name of Ann Smith, who um, she edited my first book, the one 20 years earlier, um, and then we became friends. And she ran a writer's group, and I was in her writer's group. And she just, her whole approach was to make things understandable. To, you know, I try to write it about a sixth grade level. Um, now, that may sound low, but that's actually not. That's really a good level to be writing at. Mm. And then the other, other teacher is another woman by the name of Lil Ahrens. And she's the editor of all three of my books, but my, was my teacher before then. And her thing is what's, what she refers to 
as emotional honesty. And she'll call me on it all the time when we're editing. You know, how did you really feel about that? I mean, you, you tell me, you describe it, but what, what, what did that evoke in you? Tell me more. I want to know more. So I really put a lot of that, um, the emotional honesty of the book uh, comes from my work with Anne and with Lil. Wow. So as, so as you move through this and we, we get into sort of the advocacy part of it, at what point when you're volunteering at Yellowstone, you've put in these winters and, the, and these full seasons, when did you start to, to turn and, and say, I really want to advocate for wolves, both in, both in my writing and then out as, um, just as an advocate in general? Well, if you don't mind, John, I've got another short piece I'd like to read that I think really answers that question. Hmm. That's yeah, fine. For it. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Let me, uh, and uh, <clears throat> this is called 755's Story. In December of 2012, Mary and I were home packing for our second winter when we learned of the shooting of the famous wolf known as 06. She and her Lamar Canyon pack had drawn us into the world of wolves during our first winter. And we were shocked and saddened by the loss of this powerful alpha to a trophy hunter. Next came anger at such senseless killing. And finally came the sickening realization that one bullet may kill the entire Lamar Canyon pack. The shooting of 06 left her pack and alpha male 755 outside the park with breeding season just around the corner. Though his drive to reproduce was strong, he had a pack full of females that he would not mate with since they were his daughters. He left his family outside the park, returned to Lamar Valley, and chose a female from a different pack. A few days later, his daughters returned to the Lamar Valley and attacked their father's new mate, and she limped off to die in the woods. Early the next morning, we watched and listened from the back porch of the ranch bunkhouse as 755 stood on the far side of the road and howled, seemed to plead really with his family to come down off the flank of nearby Ranger Hill and join him. When they didn't, he crossed the road and started up Ranger Hill. Two big males from a pack outside the park who were interested in the Lamar females charged down the hill. Man, they were flying towards 755. But they stopped before reaching him. None of the three moved. Then they howled. He howled back. The standoff ended when 755 retreated to just across the road. The two, ta two males, tails high, returned to what was once 755's pack. From the opposite side of the road, 755 howled again. One of his pups trotted halfway down the hill and howled. 755 replied with an almost beseeching howl. The pup looked at his father, looked back at his pack, looked at his father, looked at his pack, howled again. The pack answered. The pup looked at 755 and headed for the safety of his changing pack. 
755 Howe one last time, and he turned and started walking west out of the Lamar Valley. I'll never forget the sadness I felt that day as the pack shattered, or the awful silence of the valley as the remaining Lamars rarely made their presence known. I have come to understand how that single trophy hunter bullet did more than kill the alpha female and uproot 755. That bullet threw the delicate social order of the pack into life-threatening disarray. That bullet forced many wolves to choose new leaders, new roles, new lives. That bullet changed me. My fantasy of spending winters in wolf-filled bliss in the Lamar Valley shattered, along with my fantasy that wolves and packs were invincible. In place of those fantasies grew a desire to help protect wolves. For the first time, I considered advocating. And I know I'm not alone. That shooting and shattering impacted so many others, perhaps some of your listeners, and often in the same way. I mean, that's... I think that's, yeah, that's how a lot of people felt. I know after I read American Wolf and learned about 06 that way, and then reading up about her, how impactful, obviously, as you say, that that one death really sort of reverberated throughout Yellowstone and probably, you know, throughout North America about that. So when you, so when you get into the, the advocacy... What are, some, what are your main goals when you, I know before we, we started, you wanted to touch on the Endangered Species Act and how I know wolves have you know, been officially, I believe, de, delisted for the time being. Um, if there's anything you want to touch on there, um, was that, where, where was your fight or where was your mindset? going to be starting? Was it big, big picture or was it sort of going from small to big? What was your mindset at? That's a great question, you know, and here's the, here's the way it worked for me. As In the Temple of Wolves became an Amazon bestseller, I realized that I owed wolves a debt. If I was going to profit from a book about them, I needed to pay them back. And one way I could do that was to speak for wolves, to advocate for them. So I waded in. I've written articles. I've used social media to advocate. Uh, I've got a blog that you know many people follow, and it gets you know one recent uh, post got more than a thousand shares. I've produced slideshows and podcasts. I've spoken to individuals and groups. I've talked with legislators in Washington D.C and in Helena, our state capital in Montana. And, you know, going to Helena to attend meetings and give public, public comment when the legislature is in session has been incredibly educational. Uh, first off, the, the three-hour drive one way in the snow is pretty educational. But once I get there, I'm one of many people to give comment. Um, but... John, the anti-wolf people almost always outnumber those speaking for wolves. For instance, <clears throat> what the way this works is, so there'll be, let's say we're going to speak to a committee about a particular wolf bill that's being presented. 
and uh, the committee chair will ask for all those who are against the bill. Let's say this bill particularly is going to help us. So the chair says, well, who's against the bill? Maybe 30 anti-wolf people get in a line in front of a podium and one, one after another, they give their comments. And then the chair says, well, who's for this bill? And then five of us stand up and walk up to the podium and give our comments. So, and it's really, that's, that's a pretty straightforward ratio, about 30 to five, 30 against, five, four. And here's the thing. Um, so I get to listen to opponents describe their opposition to wolves. And what I've realized is it comes down to basically three myths. So as a writer, uh, I've taken a lot of time to fact check each of these myths, and I literally fact check them every year. <laughs> um, and I'd like to share those three myths with you, and please feel free to stop <laughs> me, ask questions, whatever. Um, yeah, I, don't wanna, I don't want to rant, but uh, I do want to share them because I think they're important, and any advocate yeah, should, any wolf advocate should know these three myths. The first one is that wolves are dangerous to humans. So there is just no support for that, realistically. Um, the, the statistics are, remember I have an MBA, so I get into numbers. And the statistics are that the wolf attacks, there have been two in the last 75 years in North America where wolves have killed humans. Two, 75 years. One in Canada, one in Alaska, none in the lower 48. So... Let's compare that to something else. How about dog attacks? In 2019, the most recent year I can find, 48 people died. 48 people in one year died from dog attacks. How about hunting accidents? About 75 people die each year in hunting accidents. I don't hear anybody saying, let's, let's ban hunting. Um, bees, wasps, hornets, their stings kill around 60 people each year. And again, there's never been a death from a wolf attack in the lower 48 and 75 years. So that's the first myth. So let me stop you. So, so when we do, so we go through the first myth, right? What are the, when you, like you say, if you're educating, what are some of the points that are brought up to educate, not just the numbers, but what are some of the, the, the ways that, you, like I said, you try to educate those who look at that viewpoint. Do you mean, uh, let me make sure I understand your question. Do you mean, how do I try to educate people who are against wolves and who believe that wolves are dangerous? Yeah. So what are, yeah. So what are, what are just one or two things that you try to write that you just sort of look to counterpoint what you just said, right? For those people. Go ahead, Stephen. What are the comments that, that, that group of folks is presenting to warrant the anxiety they have about wolves on the landscape as a threat to human beings. Well, you know, I've heard comments like, I'm afraid to go out for a walk because there are so many wolves. I'm afraid that the wolves will attack my children at the bus stop. You know, there were some wolves right near the school. I mean, these are comments I've heard at public hearings where people go to testify one way or the other about wolves. 
you know, when I hear those comments and talk to people who feel that way, um, it's really unlikely that I'm going to change their mind. Okay? You know, the, there's a deep emotional reaction. Wolves carry more baggage than any other animal I know. You know, while there's researchers, some researchers who believe that early humans during the Ice Age actually learned how to hunt by watching wolves. And befriended wolves, and wolves befriended these humans, took what one writer calls a leap of friendship, and helped us. You know, so wolves could bring uh, an animal, separate an animal from the herd, and then a human could come in with a spear and kill the animal, save the wolf from having to do that dirty work and dangerous work. And then the humans and the wolves would share the, the bounty. So there's a theory about that. Because, of course, obviously nobody was around to see that. Um, but then there's these other, there's, that's, that's the positive baggage that you rarely ever hear. But then there's all the myths and the children's stories, the little red riding hood, the three little pigs, you know, all these, the wolf is always at the door. You know, <laughs> all these little phrases and comments that people use that are built into our culture. So I'm not going to change that. I'm real, realistically, I'm not going to change that. But what, what I look for is what um, politicians call swing voters. <laughs> so I'm looking for um, people who, um, you know, if somebody loves wolves, that's actually going to limit their seeing the wolf controversy from both sides. Mm -hmm. If somebody hates wolves, I'm not likely to change that opinion. But these, what I would call swing voters, these are the people in the middle, and they're the ones I try to reach. And if I can move a swing voter toward just a respect for wolves, they don't need to hate the animal. They don't need to love the animal. But hopefully they can see wolves as wild animals that they can learn to coexist with. Maybe they can even see how wolves can help restore ecosystems, make their world a little better. Maybe they can see how wolves can help in the battle against chronic wasting disease and save some of the wildlife they want to shoot. You know, so those are the folks that I go for. Um, The ones that really hate wolves, I listen to them. I try to listen with empathy. You know, I spent 26 years as a counselor, so I, I know how to listen. And I listen with empathy and I want to hear what is behind these incredible feelings they have about wolves. And I will then, you know, say, listen, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. You know, you're afraid of wolves. But I don't know if you know this, but there's never been a wolf killed in the lower 48. I mean, excuse me, there's never been a human killed by a wolf in the lower 48. And I go, really? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually true. But you have to, you've got to listen to people first and let them know that what they're what they are saying to you is valuable. Right. So, what do you think the um, what do you think the reason is that the the gap between pro wolf groups and anti wolf groups is so large? When it seems like what we're what we're hearing at least is that a vast majority of the general public is pro wolf. And there are a lot of professionals that are pro-wolf as well. Are they just showing up in larger numbers because they have more to lose? or? Well, um, 
I can really speak to Montana and Oregon uh, from my experience in both those states as a wolf advocate on that particular issue. Montana in particular, you know, we're an incredibly rural state, okay? Mm -hmm. We've got some cities. I mean, I live in a town that has 850 people. There's not a stoplight in 52 miles. (laughs) Um, But, you know, when we go shopping, we drive 80 miles to get to Bozeman, which is quite like Corvallis, where we came from. Um, But in general, Montana is just a collection of wide open country, a whole bunch of little towns, and a couple big towns. Now, here's where that becomes important. Because of the way our legislature is set up with the House, the, the state House of Representatives, those are folks from those local areas that really fill the House of Representatives. And they come there, they've got to represent the voters who put them in. And most of those voters are conservative and have a dislike or a fear of wolves or see wolves as really not belonging where they're ranching. So the the legislator, when we go to the legislature to, you know, uh, work with bills, um, that's what we're dealing with is you've got a lot of representatives from rural areas that espouse conservative views and They have to. That's the people who put them in office. And it's really hard to find people who support wolves in that situation. Mm. It's the same thing in Eastern Oregon. Eastern Oregon, the folks there feel like the folks on the western side of the mountains, which is where most of Oregon's population is, are telling them how to live. You know, it's kind of like in Colorado as well. Yeah. Where, you know, the, the anti-wolf people in Colorado say, we ought to put some of those wolves over there on the east side of the Rockies. You know, put them in the middle of a neighborhood, see how they like it. <laughs> um, you know, that's the same way a lot of um, Eastern Oregonians feel. And that's a, that's a real hard, um, it's a real hard attitude to challenge, you know. And the way that comes out is what I hear an awful lot is that wolves plunder livestock. And that's actually the second myth, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if you, and again, you look at the numbers on that, there's Montana right now, most recent numbers has 2,550,000 head of cattle. Mm. That's 2.5 cows for every single Montana. Okay. There's another 220,000 sheep. So two and three quarter million head of livestock. Most recent count of Montana wolves is 813. And there is no way that 813 wolves can make much of a dent in two Mm -hmm. and three quarter million head of livestock. Mm -hmm. But I have had many people say to me, oh yeah, but you know, that's true. But when it's your livestock they're eating, it makes a whole lot of difference. Mm-hmm. I get that. And I, you know, I accept that. So, you know, then I, I listen some more, but what's, what's gone through my mind is, you know, for instance, in Montana in 2019, there were confirmed wolf kills of 69 cattle and 21 sheep, 90 head of livestock out of two and three quarter million. And that, Number of confirmed kills has generally been decreasing since 2009. So, you know, 
But a rancher will say to me, yeah, but if it's your cow, you know, all those other numbers don't matter. Mm. And that is true. You know, so they've got an emotional response there. And that, and that is true. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing that I, I can't accept as true is that, um, you know, it's killing the livestock. Wolves are killing the livestock industry in Montana. You know, Montana, like any state with a large wolf population, reimburses for losses. In Montana, ranchers are reimbursed for both confirmed and probable losses at 100% of fair market value. So in other words, if, if a rancher has uh, a calf taken by wolves, mm-hmm. they're going to get 100% of fair market mm-hmm. value of that calf. Wow. Now, if, mm-hmm. if the rancher had been intending to keep that animal until it was a full-sized adult and get more money from it, they have suffered a loss there. Right. No question. That's, that's true and real. But I think about insurance, you know, and I, I think about that as an insurance payment and, and how many losses that ranchers face can they get insurance on? In 2019, the state of Montana paid out $82,000 in compensation to ranchers for the loss due to wolves on 78 head of livestock. $82,000. You know, even given this reimbursement for losses and a truly small number of depredations, 72 wolves were killed in 2019 in response to depredation. That's almost one wolf for every head of cattle or livestock killed. Do you see, and we've we've touched on this topic uh, numerous times, Stephen and myself, with with other guests. With all of these interactions, do you have you seen, I guess, over the course of time that you've been immersed in this in this wolf advocacy, and even at your time in Yellowstone, where the pendulum seems to be swinging like you said, more towards the respectability coexisting section as opposed to really the two points at the end. In other words, where, yeah, instead of the extremes, are you seeing a movement towards the middle where these sides are are talking more, there's more range riders, there's more uh, non-lethal methods that have been used? Hmm. You know, I- it's a real good question. And I think my answer is no, I'm not seeing that. I do know of projects in the West where non-lethals are being used and used effectively. And that is changing attitudes. I mean, that exists and that's wonderful. Really. That's great. Um, But I, I come at this advocacy from working within the political system. And that's not going to change unless the demographics of Montana change. Because the rules, the laws about livestock and wolves and hunting and trapping are made by legislators for the most part. And they come from rural areas. So until those demographics change, that population of legislators is going to be the same. And um, we just had our election, as every other state did in November, and 
we now have, instead of a democratic governor who can veto um, bad laws, bad bills, we now have a Republican governor. Um, we have a Republican senator and one Democratic senator, and we just got a Republican. Uh, we have one member of the House of Representatives, and he's a Republican. Um, you know, in preparing for this year's dealing with the legislature, you know, we've actually looked at these committees. Who's on the committee, um, and what do we think is their approach toward wolves? And in both the Senate and House Fish and Game Committees are almost, well, majority anti-wolf. Let's just put it that way. So if you, so I guess what I'll, what I'll ask is moving, moving forward, do you feel that there is, how do you think the, the conversation is going to evolve as we head into the future? of the West really with cattle ranchers and things of that sort and the, the observation of wolves. Go ahead, Stephen. I know you were chiming in. And, and what, what do you hope happens? And um, it's, I, I can't really tell, D- does this system work? Um, you know, paying for lost cattle, uh, the depredation permits, is it all working or what, what, what could be done? What could be done better to sort of promote this coexistence that, a lot of folks are hoping, you know, they'll see happen in the future. Well, my hope is, and again, I deal, I've decided that most of where I can be most effective is in dealing with legislation. Mm. Um, and so what works for me, and the, I, I work in conjunction with a couple other national advocates and we work together as a team. And what works for us is trying to get other people to write personal letters, to write personal emails, to make personal phone calls to committee members, to legislators, to fish and game departments, and let them know that they're for or against some piece of legislation. And we found great success with that. Um, not frequent success great success on a few occasions. And again, it's just, it's, that's the battle. And, and part of the real battle about being an advocate in this situation is learning how to stay the course. I mean, this is long haul uh, work that we're all doing. This is not going to change tomorrow, this year, next year, the following year. We're looking at hundreds of years of hatred of wolves and misre- and misrepresent and misrepresentation also right absolutely absolutely and we're looking at hundreds of years of that built into our culture you know that came across the ocean with the first colonists they came from europe where most wolves had already been eradicated yet they <laughs> stepped off the boats hating wolves and immediately set to work getting rid of wolves. So, you know, that's what we're dealing with here. And, you know, that's why uh, I have decided to go in the area of dealing with legislation, simply because I at least want there to be consequences when people act against wolves illegally. I would love for, uh, Stephen, you ask, you know, what would I really like to see happen? Mm -hmm. 
And what I would really like to see is that, you know, wolves need people be, to be willing to coexist with them. We have to change our behavior. We can't realistically expect a wolf to change its behavior. Wolves mate and hunt and raise pups and spread to new areas. That's what they do. But we as humans have the capability to do so much more for good and for bad. And I think that we need this message to get out to people wherever wolves survive. Wolves will coexist with us. And we have to learn to coexist with wolves. Yeah, we've we've heard we've heard this from multiple guests of ours that that echo that same sentiment and feel that there is there is some sort of movement towards the middle, and I think that's I, I certainly agree with your you know with with the plight that there needs to be these rational discussions and that every voice needs to be heard so that there can be really a meeting of worlds. Yeah. Just a meeting in the middle of how we can, like you say, the coexistence end of it, I think is really the driving force now, as opposed to the extremes, which I find would really benefit both species, both human and wolf is this coexistence and this responsibility for both part, I mean, really on the part of, of humans, but the responsibility to understand how looking back at history, how we coexisted, how that has evolved into a situation where it isn't that way and how we need to get back to the center and be able to continue to evolve together as the world is always ever changing, especially at West. Yeah, I, I think that um, coming back to people with the idea that and the concept that wolves can actually help ecosystems, you know, I think people who make their living on the land understand that. Yeah. Um, I think coming back to them with the idea that if you're a hunter and you're concerned about CWD, do you know how wolves might be helpful in that area? Exactly. Yes. You know? So those are, those are really great approaches. Uh, to take. Yeah, no question about that. Right. And I think that's a great angle. And it's really a good conversation. It's not trying to tip the scales in either direction. And I believe that there, there are, like you said, CWD, chronic wasting disease, is a both species issue that can be resolved by both species working together to make. That's just one of the things that we do. Um, that would really help. Um, I know we're we're running and we're we're doing great. And and Rick, I, I all of this again. Thank you so much for giving your time and and talking about these things. Uh, when you, I, I want to just slip back to in in with this conversation that we're talking points we're on now. Do you feel that your writings, your essays, your your books that you've written, do you feel that these can or are having that impact that you want them to have when you when you advocate when people read your books and read your works do you think that it's working for the positive to get people into the middle 
Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think two different books. Well, you know, I've written three recently, but the third one, The Wilds of Aging, isn't really about wolves um, or wildlife. It's about aging, as the title would lead you to believe. Uh, but in The Temple of Wolves, the first book about the ecology of the Lamar Valley, the wolves that live there and our experience of living there, what I've seen and heard from many readers who then write to me, either through social media or email, um, it has really opened up people's eyes to um, the plight of wolves, that the struggle they have to live. And, you know, as did for you, um, John, when you said, you know, you felt like you were right there with me, that's a, it's, it's lovely. And it's a comment that I get a lot, and I'm honored that people feel that way. Um, so I get this comment so many times from people about how can I help? How can I help? What can I do for wolves? So I think that book touches people who are on that fence, the swing voters, the swing readers, if you will, and brings them in. The other book, uh, Deep into Yellowstone. So um, that's the one that I wrote during my first year living in Gardner. And I, I thought, uh, you know, when, when we moved from Oregon to live in Gardner, I thought, man, I mean, I'm just going to watch wolves and be in the park all the time. This is going to be so incredibly beautiful. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, Yellowstone, as you know, is beautiful. There's a grandeur there that's unparalleled anywhere mm -hmm. that I've ever been. I'm not a world traveler, but I have traveled around the U.S. And, um, but I, my whole expectation was I was just going to do nothing but watch wolves. But I had made the commitment to the Bear Creek Council, which is an all-volunteer um, conservation group centered in Gardner, and I made the commitment that if I live, if I move to Gardner, I'm going to join this group and help out in any way I can. <laughs> and so I did. And what I learned is that Gardner sits right at the heart of a number of controversies. Mm. You know, there's the shooting of wolves when they step out of the park, the shooting of Yellowstone wolves when they step out of the park. There's industrial mining for gold right near the Yellowstone River. There's the overuse of the park. Well, there's delisting of grizzlies. There's the yearly or the winter slaughter of bison. There's the debate over whether wolves help or hurt the ecosystem. And, <laughs> you know, all of that. So I'd, I'd be writing about any of these controversies and, and, and think to myself, my God, why did I move here? You know, geez, <laughs> I didn't even know about any of these things. You know, I spent three winters in the Lamar Buffalo Ranch and never knew about any of these controversies. Talk about living in a bubble. Um, but anyway, so I, I got exposed to all this. I wrote about it. And what I found from readers responding to that book is they really appreciate hearing about these controversies. And um, in particular, uh, I hope that Deep into Yellowstone encourages people to stand up and fight for bison. Um, they really, bison got a lot of chapters in that book. And uh, they should. You know, they're a, a marvelous animal and one, one of my favorites. And I hate to see what happens to them every winter, but I go and watch it. 
because I want to be there. I want to feel that anger. I want to feel that sadness because that's what's got to go into my writing. I love, yeah. I, I love the work that you do. I appreciate your writing. I, I, I will read Deep into Yellowstone. I was telling Stephen before you, you got on here, probably this weekend, because uh, once I get immersed in things like this, I, I have to, I have to read it. I have to get the knowledge. Otherwise, I, I, I feel lost in a way, and I, I don't feel that I'm fully invested. So, it will be on my to do list in the next weekend uh, or this week. I. I'd love to have you back on to, to speak more in depth about that book uh, later on. I know we, we've touched on so many different things with you today. If there's, Stephen, do you have anything else? Yeah, you have your, go ahead if you want. I don't know if you were asking something else. I have one more question to ask just because I was listening to you talking before about the public becoming more knowledgeable about wolves. I was wondering how you feel about Colorado's move to turn the voting onto the public. Yeah, it seems like an unprecedented way of, you know, voting on something that usually is decided on by biologists and, and scientists. Um, yeah, I, I, um, <laughs> I wrote about this whole reintroduction of wolves into Colorado in support of it. I think it's perfectly fine the Colorado voters, what they voted on was to instruct their Parks and Wildlife Department to develop and implement a science-based plan for mm. reintroducing gray wolves. Right. They didn't just say, you know, get some wolves, stick them out there, you guys, and do it now. <laughs> you know, they, right. what they want is a reintroduction of wolves. Now, but you, you know, here's, it took me hours of writing about this to ask myself a very simple question. Why aren't wolves getting from Wyoming to Colorado? You know, in the 25 years since wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone, they went to Oregon, they swam across the Snake River and got into Oregon, established population. They went to Washington, wolves from Oregon went down to California. Right, we have the last impact in California now. Exactly, right. In 2020, there's now um, 15 wolves in California. There's a breeding pair, okay? Mm -hmm. so. Why, in 2020, is there not a breeding pair of wolves in Colorado? Now, that, to me, is a very important question, and I've got a rather lengthy answer to it, and I'm happy to give it if you want to put the time into it or it's something we can talk about another time. So, Let's hear it. No, let's go for it. Okay. All yeah, right. Please. So... so um, Okay, so some dispersers did reach Colorado, but most of them ended up dead. Poisoned, hit by a car, shot by a hunter, claiming he thought he shot a coyote. In July of 2019, a collared male from the Wyoming's Snake River Pack arrived in northwest Colorado and is still in the state, according to the Colorado Parks and Wildlife website. In January of 2020, Colorado Parks and Wildlife confirmed that a pack of six wolves, mostly brothers and sisters, were living in northwestern Colorado. Since most of those wolves are related, of course, reproduction is unlikely without mm. unrelated dispersers coming to the state to breed with them. Right. 
But those dispersers better hurry because in September of 2020, the Center for Biological Diversity reported that at least three of those six wolves in that pack had been illegally shot and killed. So there it is, a confirmed wolf and three survivors of illegal shooting after a quarter century of wolves dispersing elsewhere across the West. So, you know, Wyoming sits right on Colorado's northern border. Wyoming produces dispersers. So I looked at Wyoming's wolf management plan, and the more I dug into that plan, the more I saw how Wyoming has created what I have come to call a wolf prison that keeps dispersers from reaching Colorado. So that prison sits in the northwest corner of the state, on the public lands that surround Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks. Wyoming calls this prison its wolf trophy game management area. <laughs> wow. Yeah, wolf trophy. <laughs> A recent Wyoming Game and Fish Department map of the prison reveals that almost every one of the state's 50 or so wolf packs roam within the trophy area most or all of the time, and only three packs survive outside of that trophy area. Now, good news, trophy hunters do need a license to kill, and there are limits to how many wolves can be taken. In 2020, 31 wolves were killed in the trophy zone. Bad news. If a wolf isn't killed in the trophy zone, it can be killed trying to escape. But wolves are not made to be imprisoned. You know, dispersing is natural. Dispersing is essential. And when a wolf disperses from the trophy zone where it can be hunted three months of the year, it enters the 85% of the state where it can be shot on site anytime, anywhere, by anyone. No license needed. Mm. Now, Wyoming calls this area surrounding the trophy zone its predator zone. So in Wyoming, wolves are either trophies or predators. Now, of course, a wolf can't see prison walls designated by lines on a map when it feels compelled to leave. Let's, let's consider for a minute a wolf that busts out and heads south in search of elk. Plenty of elk can be found between the Wind River Reservation, which sits at the southeast corner of the prison, and the Colorado border. That's according to three websites oriented to elk hunters. So the escaped wolf may take an elk right away or continue south. In less than 200 miles, which is not a long wolf journey, the escapee, if not shot on site anytime, anywhere by anyone, could reach northwestern Colorado, which has abundant elk, and is where all of Colorado's few confirmed wolf sightings have occurred. But with the way Wyoming has set up the prison, an escapee's chances of reaching Colorado are deathly slim. Last year, 24 wolves were reported killed in the predator zone. That's according to the Wyoming Game and Fish. Now, that's just the number reported. I wouldn't be surprised if others were shot and not reported. They are, after all, considered vermin in the predator zone. But yet that collared male from the Snake River Pack escaped the prison and survived the predator zone and reached northwestern Colorado. And his escape and survival may actually be more miraculous than Oregon's famous OR7 that traveled from northeastern Oregon to northern California. Because while on his journey, OR7 was almost always protected by the Endangered Species Act. 
But this escapee from Wyoming's Wolf Prison had no protection in the predator zone. And I think that this prison system Wyoming uses to manage wolves keeps dispersing wolves from reaching Colorado, a state with plenty of elk and suitable wolf habitat. So last year, 24 wolves were killed in the predator zone. Now surely some of them, probably most of them, were heading towards Colorado when they were mm. senselessly killed. If they had reached Colorado, these dispersers could have found one another bred and created a permanent wolf population like they did in Oregon, like they did in Washington, like they did in California. So the impact of Wyoming's wolf management plan on Colorado's wolf population shows why dispersing wolves need federal protection under the Endangered Species Act. You know, when management is handed over to individual states, one state's management approach can stand in the way of dispersing wolves reclaiming more of the species' lost habitat in another state just as Wyoming's prison and predator zone has stopped wolves from reclaiming habitat in Colorado. So if they can't walk there, then bring them in with a truck. And that's what they're about. I mean, that's, that's what's going to happen, I believe, within the next, or they're, they're trying to plan in the next two years. So, and Stephen will be right in the middle of that, it seems, on that side of the, side of the mountain. So, um, I mean, that's, yeah, there's, there's so much to, to delve into with, with all that. And I, I, I think the one thing I'll ask uh, before we let you go, Rick, and then I, I, I want to plug your, your social media, your blog, your books again at the end. And of course the invitation stands for you to come back and we can discuss more of this as we get, you know, deeper in the year and we talk more about Colorado and their reintroduction program. Cause I feel like you'll be, <laughs> you'll be there on that, on that end in some way. Um, when you when you hear the word wolf, what are some things that come to your mind? I think what comes to my mind is an essential predator with a right to live here. Beautiful. So I give the floor to you, Rick. Please, um, I know, so just so everyone, Rick has written three books, the two books that we were talking about today in the Temple of Wolves, A Winter's Immersion in Wild Yellowstone, and the follow-up to that, Deep into Yellowstone, A Year's Immersion in Grandeur and Controversy can both be found on Amazon. I highly recommend anyone who is listening to the podcast um, or who is a wolf or just a wildlife person uh, to go and check these books out, purchase them. Uh, they're beautifully written. Rick, please tell everybody where they can find you on social media and where they can find some of your blogs and other works. Uh, so the easiest way to find me, which I wish my last name was easier to pronounce and spell, uh, <laughs> you know, like Rick Smith, for instance, but it's not. Um, but if you Google Rick, R-I-C-K, Lamplu, and that's spelled, get ready with your pencils now, L-A-M-P-L-U, G-H. Um, Rick Lamplew at blogspot.com is my blog. Go on Facebook, search Rick Lamplew. You'll get right to my Facebook page. I think that's all you need. You'll, you, know, you can get everywhere else from there. So Facebook, just search by my name, Rick Lamplew. And for my blog, ricklamplew.blogspot.com. And thanks uh, for your kind words, Stephen, about uh, both those books. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. 
No, it's it's great, Rick. It's been an, an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you for giving us uh, the time, the information, uh, your passion. Uh, it's great. And like I said, it, it stands that uh, anytime you want to come back, just email and we'll get you back on the podcast. Yeah, I, I, um, I'd be happy to come back at another time and talk about the Endangered Species Act. You know, yeah. Because as you mentioned just a moment ago, actually on Monday, January 4th, is when the delisting officially took place. So, you know, there's, and there's going to be court battles. And uh, I highly recommend that you uh, check in with the, you know, the organizations that are, that are fighting uh, with this. So Western Environmental Law Center and also um, Earth Justice. Both of those, Western Environmental Law Center and Earth Justice, um, check in with them, and I urge your listeners to support them financially because this stuff costs a lot of money. Yeah, we will. We will direct everybody to that, and uh, yeah, let's set up a date uh, once we get off here, and we'll uh, we'll have you back on so we can discuss how things are going on that end. So, Rick, again, I would love to do a whole ESA episode. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. Let's, happy, to, happy to do that. Awesome. We will do it. We'll book it and uh, we'll have you back on. Rick, thank you so much. Howls to all of you out there. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us from Colorado. Uh, howls to everyone out there and we will speak with you next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs>